Welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Well, like we said, it's Monday, coming off of Thanksgiving weekend. We hope you all had a great weekend. And Ian, how was, you know, last time we were together, I think it was on Tuesday, we were looking forward to Thanksgiving, favorite meals. What's it going to be like differently this week? How was your Thanksgiving? Well, I mean, did you watch the Lions game? Uh, and then they fired their coach. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was funny because, you know, when, when people, especially if they put like money on the game or something, I knew a, a, a couple of people who did. And it was kind of heartwarming to see how angry they also were at the Lions. I felt I felt so understood. Like they kept saying things to me. You know, people were texting and tweeting, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to the club, man. This has been my Thanksgiving ritual for a decade plus it is uh it is yeah that's i mean i'm being a little cheeky there but uh, that was a bummer always always a bummer but i mean you know good food and definitely different yeah it's weird because we've had other holidays since this pandemic but it feels like thanksgiving and christmas maybe maybe i'm naive they feel like really really significant ones ones Mm -hmm. where like gathering physically with people is really uh, central and important for for a lot of people, and that felt, oh, I mean, almost eerie. Is that is that an okay word to use for it? Yeah, like it just yeah, felt, I was like, yeah. oh, this is like I'm so thankful, and we're all healthy, and we're all safe, and there's so much to be thankful for. But it just felt kind of like it felt a lot like the first time I went into a grocery store and saw everyone with masks. I was like, okay, mm. I know we need to do this, but this feels odd. Like, how how was it for you? Uh, yeah, it was different. Although we did go the. My wife's sister and brother-in-law, we've ever since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, they're like, it's always like, who are the people you trust kind of get in a bubble with them. And so we've been with them a lot and they have a cabin up in Wisconsin out in the middle of the woods where you don't see anybody. So we actually went up there with them. Uh, So it still had a good feel of a getaway and, Mm -hmm. uh, and relaxing, but yeah, you know, we didn't do Thanksgiving with my family the way we normally would have. And uh, so, yeah, definitely different. Did you guys like Zoom with your family or really? Oh, fast? yeah. Or was that, like, a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> Zoomed with my family in Detroit while we watched the game at the same time. So oh, there was no yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of profanity. A lot of no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It well, was just, what we know. Yeah. What we did learn here is why do you have friends putting money on the Detroit Lions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. They were feeling they were feeling risky. But uh, yeah, your your team did though fire their coach. That felt time. That felt like about time. So hey, at yeah. least a new start. And uh, the people who can understand how the Lions feel are their opponents coming up this Sunday. The Chicago Bears. Woo! Mm-hmm. Was that mm-hmm. a tough one last night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so. that was the angriest my newsfeed has been in a while. Man, that was it was no it bueno. was yeah. Uh, the Bears Lions game, otherwise known as somebody's got to win. <laughs> so that's coming up. <laughs> that's coming up I mean, this Sunday. Maybe Could not. Time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's this Sunday. Well, anyway, we hope that you all had a great holiday weekend. It was good to uh, to kind of recharge a little bit. Hopefully, to kind of focus on what you are thankful for. And now we are full fledged in the uh, in the Christmas season. So. Uh, but over the weekend, there was well, that, a big advent. We're in advent season. I just I'm sorry for my for my orthodox liturgical friend. It's full into yes. advent season. And I got if you see the article we're going to discuss in the next segment, everybody would be just very disappointed in my misspeak there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just semantics. 
Although I told my daughter, speaking of Christmas, she's like, she's been begging me to get a, bugging me to get up a Christmas tree lately. And I'm like, not till after Thanksgiving. Not, and it's become like this big family argument where we're all dug in about when you could put up lights and, and See, trees. That's normally how I am. But my, my posture this year is like, it's 2020. All bets are off. Like if it that's makes right. you happy, we'll put it up now. So we did. I put up the lights outside, but not yet the uh, Christmas tree. So, you know, that's, uh, that's decision. That's kind of where we are. So there was, speaking of decisions, there was a big uh, court case out of the Supreme Court that hit this weekend. I didn't even know it was coming, that it was out there. But a Supreme Court case about New York State and their restrictions about worship services. And the question is, what does this mean for churches across the country? So why don't you catch us up a little bit on that story, and then we'll talk about it. Well, there's a lot going on here. I mean, you got four articles in here, so I would encourage (laughs) everyone to uh, just go read them. It's It's worth reading. And it's interesting because... They all take a slightly different perspective, too. So I'll read That's the right. Christianity Today one, uh, at least the beginning of it. As coronavirus cases surge against nationwide, again nationwide, the Supreme Court late Wednesday barred New York from enforcing certain limits on attendance at churches and synagogues in areas designated as hard hit by the virus. The justice, the justices split five to four with New Justice Amy Coney Barrett in the majority. It was the conservatives' first publicly discernible vote as a justice. The court's three liberal justices and Chief Justice John Roberts dissented. The move was a shift for the court earlier this year when Barrett's liberal predecessor, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was still on the court. The justice divided five to four to leave in place pandemic-related capacity restrictions affecting churches in California and Nevada. I I guess I could probably stop there. That's enough information for us to at least riff for a bit. Uh, Everyone was talking about this. Yes. And it is uh heated to say the least um <laughs> yeah and i guess not without good reason like is this the kind of thing that you can you see both sides to it or are you like no this is just this is the right call regardless like are you what percentage of torn are you on this topic uh i'm very torn i can totally see both sides of it because yeah. uh, as we've said we've done many stories from across the country of states where you kind of raise an eyebrow going wait you're coming down hard on churches, I California, Nevada, New York. You're coming down hard on churches, yet at the same time, you're letting X, Y, and Z remain open or protest or whatever else it might be. And so on that sense, I do get it. Like uh, churches, are they essential? Are they not? What 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 are the restrictions? So I do on that level go, okay, yeah, no, I get why it's important for the Supreme Court to say, no, no, they, they – there needs to be a little bit of a loosening here. But I also totally get the other side, especially as a pastor who's trying mm-hmm. to ask himself these questions with his own church. Not only what are we allowed to do, but what is safe to do and what is wise to do and what also, quite frankly, sends a good message to our neighbors by right. what we do. Like, I'm not looking for us to be John MacArthur. There's no pandemic. Just forget this. We're going. Uh, and there's churches across the board in the Chicagoland area right now doing all sorts of different things. So I totally see both sides of it because I do think there are some protections for churches in, that, that need to be held up and they need to be protected. And at the same time, we are in the midst of a pandemic and we need to be careful and to be wise. So I do see both sides. How about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I definitely can. I agree with, I think, probably most everything you just said. What it's the timing is interesting for me in all of this. Like, for example, you know, a few months ago, we had planned to uh, to offer some kind of in-person Christmas Eve services at community at the yellow box where I'm at in particular. And uh, we just made an announcement that we're not going to be able to provide that now for, you know, a a myriad of reasons. Mm -hmm. And like you were mentioning, you know, wanting 
safety to be a high priority, a high value for us? Um, and how do we love our neighbors well and all, all of those things? So it's, it's, it's a decision that, you know, we've made yep. internally as leadership. But, you know, the the dissenting opinions certainly come out too, though. And people have sent us, we've talked about this before, you know, mm-hmm. bent a knee to Caesar and we've, or we're not, you know, being courageous enough for the gospel. And, and, you know, people, people are feeling, feeling very real uh, hurt and discouragement as well. And so we're just trying to navigate that all, all as best we can. Yeah. Um, but things like this, for me, this, this story is, it's a lot more, there's a lot more reading I want to do, I think, um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's so convoluted so complicated but i i can definitely see both sides yeah i mean you brought it up and something we've been sharing as pastors that we've never really were prepared for this but i heard from somebody in our church this weekend basically saying i am i might be going to another church where i don't have to wear a mask yes like, right. okay <laughs> like like these have real consequences for us as pastors and churches right. it's not like just everyone's just kind of going whatever you say pastor you know we hear about it and, and it makes it difficult i want to end really fast with just a line from uh, Ed Stetzer's blog at Christianity Today, uh, this person, a professor of law and religion, wrote this. This is how they ended. It says, of course, questions of law and governmental policy speak only to what houses of worship may do, not what they should do. And therein lies mm. the question. <laughs> therein lies the question. So as Ian said, we had four articles on this one topic. You can find them all up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, an article out of Religion News. In a year of waiting and hoping, Advent reminds us that patience can be healthy. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. And as we said uh, earlier, we hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. And then Ian and I made the mistake of saying, and now we're moving towards Christmas. But you explained very uh, graciously, not Christmas, <laughs> it's Advent. <laughs> it also here says, help somebody understand that. Because there could be people out there going, Christmas, Advent, tomato, tomato, all the same thing. Uh, in the church calendar, are you able to, can you just quit briefly explain difference between Christmas and Advent? I mean, yeah. I mean, Advent from the Latin Adventus, I believe, just simply means coming. It's a it's a season of anticipation and uh, the beginning of the liturgical calendar year. So I, again, I'm not Orthodox, so I'm sure somebody listening could explain this much better than I could. But I think it's a really important, in the same way, not the same way, in a similar way, to um to lent that you know leads mm-hmm. to easter and even people who weren't raised with any sort of like liturgical exposure have often told me man i really i really took seriously the season of lent this year and it made like the beauty of easter that much more profound and i'm like yes that's the that's the point uh i think a similar thing can happen when we when we truly like observe advent and allow it to be sort of this anticipatory you know we think of you know, Malachi prophesied, you know, the coming Messiah. And then there was 400 years of nothing, of silence, of of waiting before before Jesus came to earth uh, incarnate. So like there's a there's a deep, long tradition of like sitting, waiting, anticipating that I think is is it's good psychologically, but I think it's just good spiritually. It's good formation. And uh, I would highly recommend if you've never really observed Advent to start somewhere. And then, you know, as we've talked about on the show before and Christmas, yeah. then is from the, the 25th to Epiphany, January 6th. So you don't have to take the tree down January 26th. We get to celebrate <laughs> all the way to Epiphany, and we could, you know, we can get into that another time. But it's a much, I don't know, it's a it's a beautiful way, I think, of celebrating. 
that uh, is much more robust than what a lot of sort of the Hallmark versions tend to yeah. portray. Uh, that was well done. And our program director, Marcus Brown, somewhere has a tear rolling down his face <laughs> as, as you explain that. <laughs> That's my goal with every show. Just rolling down his face. Well, that was a great segue at Religion News, an opinion piece by Wes Granberg Michelson. Uh, says this. I'm going to have you read some of it. And then I think this fleshes out exactly what you were just sharing. The title is this. In a year of waiting and hoping, Advent reminds us that patience can be healthy. And then subtitled, Advent comes with this countervailing message. Expect God to show up in unexpected places like a subway car, a Zoom call, or a stable. Mm. Why don't you jump us into this great opinion piece at Religion News? I'd love to. It starts this Advent. We can choose to wait. The coronavirus pandemic has forced society to press the pause button. This involuntary interruption to the often mindless pace of our lives opened new space, terrifying for some, liberating for others. Our lives have been put on hold against our will. Advent, the three to four weeks of the liturgical calendar in which we anticipate Christmas, arrives this year into this strange mix of cultural impatience and fear. Some believe we can simply power our way out of months of watchful waiting, overcoming the virus by willing it away. But Advent itself is designed to act as a psychological and spiritual pause button. It teaches the wisdom of waiting and offers us a countercultural choice to embrace persistent, expectant patience. Psychology affirms the essential role of waiting in our emotional development. Recall the famous marshmallow experiment in which researchers at Stanford told five and six-year-old children that they could eat the marshmallow the researchers put on a table in front of them, but if they waited 15 minutes alone, uh, alone with the single marshmallow, they could have two. The researchers then checked in with the kids for decades. Those who waited, delaying instant gratification, were more likely to score higher on SAT tests, had better social skills, and were less likely to engage in substance abuse or to be obese. Patience, it turns out, is actually healthy. The qualities those children needed to develop to restrain their impulse for instant gratification were memory and attention span. Those same skills are necessary for us during Advent. Spending time on the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrimage across Spain to the shrine of the Apostle James, was like a school for me, teaching the practice of patience. The desired end was miles and days away, requiring, in my case, 344,347 steps. I counted using my iPhone, which seemed <laughs> at the outset to be unimaginable. But a pilgrimage liberates the one who is wandering and waiting for the love of God from the cult of efficiency. Becoming expectant of changing scenes and uninvited companions opens a pilgrim up to wonder like a manger becoming a cradle and shepherds hearing angels. I just want to like read this whole thing and just soak in it. Man, it's so good. I'll stop there though. Like, is this um, a helpful perspective for you? Is this like old news to you or is this like a fresh way of, of seeing Advent in light of our, our current circumstances? You know, I, it's not uh, old news. I think the part of it that I find fascinating is uh, tying it into psychology, like the yeah. effects, just not even talking Bible and Jesus and, and Christianity, the effects of waiting. And we all know this when you have little kids, your kids are what, what do they do in the car whenever you're on any trip of any length? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we right. there yet? And they just can't wait. And so this idea of, of waiting being good for us. And now in our current cultural element of, you know, we're all waiting for this virus to get better, to go away or what, or for the vaccine to become. We're waiting to open our churches or our businesses. We're waiting for things to get back to normal hmm. and that there is something that grows us as we wait. Uh, you know, some of that stuff about the kids who were able to wait early on now having higher SAT scores, right. uh, you know, not having obesity, all these kinds of things. 
uh, I find fascinating. And, and we do not live in a culture, and I am guilty of this as anybody, that waits well. <laughs> waiting right. is, uh, to quote a great philosopher, right? Waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> and yeah, so, right. uh, yeah, this is a good reminder for me. I did not grow up, nor am I currently in a tradition that speaks of Advent in terms of the liturgical calendar and waiting. And so I think reminding ourselves of this at Advent and also, like you said, at Lent leading up to Easter, uh, I think is really powerful and helpful. Yeah, let me just read the last couple of paragraphs, the short paragraphs. I think we have time. He uh, writes, just as we have different reactions to the coronavirus pandemic, some in Bethlehem's story found this involuntary interruption coming into the world terrifying, others liberating. An anxious father, a mother lost in wonder, frightened shepherds, curious astrologers, a narcissist, a paranoid king, but God shows up and breaks in through ways unanticipated. This Advent, we too can decide to wait through these four Sundays, not demanding answers, but living into the story of God's unexpected, intrusive, quietly disruptive breakthrough. We may find ourselves and even discover our true self in the story. It will require the discipline of remembering what happened and what can still happen. It will stretch our attention span, waiting patiently for what will come. Speed kills, especially in Advent. Sheltering in place like the Holy Family, we can decide to wait, listen, and hope. And then we can hear the words, fear not, for this news will bring great joy. That, I just, mm-hmm. I think it's such a good word, man. Thanks for choosing this. Absolutely. And the question becomes, <laughs> this sounds uh, uh, very Western, but what do we do while we wait, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. okay, I'm waiting for Christmas. Now, what do I do? And, and I think I'd love to hear your answer to that. But I think just this idea of remembering uh, what's coming and this anticipation and using this time uh, to really sit in um, the coming of Jesus and all that it means instead of just rushing forward to Christmas and the gifts and the birth and all of this stuff. How would you answer that in our last minute? What uh, If someone's just it's like, all right, I've got my pen out. What do I do uh, over this next four weeks of Advent of waiting? Well, all right. So a couple of things I'd recommend. One, just find like a an Advent devotional. I know that sounds real cheesy, like, oh boy, what a shock. A pastor is recommending a devotional, but it's, it's worth it. Um, we also mentioned uh, the Common Rule, which was a, a great mm-hmm. book about the daily office and all that. He actually just released uh, an Advent edition for free on the website. So you can go to thecommonrule.org. I highly recommend you check that out because it's more than just, you know, something to read, which is really important. But actually, to your question, what are some things that I can actually do? I don't have time to unpack them all right now, but mm-hmm. check those out because the resources are super helpful. Even like some of this is nostalgia for me, but we always did the candles in my home growing Mm -hmm. up and uh, had a reading involved and we would, I mean, I just, I'm sure I didn't love it when I was nine because it felt lame, but like looking back, those were really (laughs) sweet seasons of like anticipation leading up to Christmas. And and in a lot of ways, my parents, I thought were really courageously kind of standing against the opposition of like constantly going and constant consumerism. So I would recommend just a a couple of those Mm -hmm. things. Think about something to read and think about like a daily practice or a spiritual rhythm. Coming up next, Joy Freeman, the city director of Resource Global, Uh, is going to join us and share much more about Resource Global next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. And we're excited to be joined on the phone uh, by the founder and CEO of Remnant Strategy, Joy Freeman. Joy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brian and Ian, for having me. Oh, it's certainly our pleasure. Why don't you, for the sake of our audience, why don't you introduce yourself however you see fit? Sure. So as, as you mentioned, my name is Joy Freeman. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of a consulting firm, Remnant Strategy, which we do a lot of work focused on the intersection of culture 
and business. And then I'm also the city director for Resource Global, which is an organization here in Chicago that also has a global reach. And um, I just came into this role as city director and I'm really excited for what we have coming for emerging leaders. So it sounds like you were a cohort in Resource Global before becoming this uh, city director role that you now hold. Can you talk to us about that journey a little bit? Sure. So um, a, a little bit about RG, um, the, the background of it, the really the heart of it is this idea of um, the mission being really resourcing, equipping, and then releasing the next generation of Christian leaders. And so I, um, at the time, I had just started my MBA program at Kellogg and really had a longing and desire to take what I had been doing with on my own and in my young professionals ministry around faith and work and, and, and having kind of this like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego crew <laughs> that could help me think differently as I continue to move through my career. And so for me, uh, you know, God's timing is always perfect. He allowed me to connect with um, the, at the time, the resource director or city director for Resource Global in Chicago. And I just found that the, the program was exactly what I needed. So it's an eight month program. It has a curriculum that's designed around really discovering who you are, um, your gospel centered identity, leadership, mission. Um, and then the goal of the program is that each cohort member develops their own action plan for how they mm -hmm. feel that they're called to have a gospel impact in their city. Um, so my experience as a cohort member, like I said, alongside doing my MBA, really gave me this well-rounded view of what it meant to be equipped um, with the tools for business, but then also be equipped through the power of God to, to kind of be like Joseph um, in, in elevated in places where there aren't a lot of me, um, business leaders who also have a heart for Christ. And then doing that alongside other people who are emerging leaders in their career and have a passion to do the same thing. Um, so that was really the, the, the heart for Resource Global, the reason, the things that really attracted me to it, the, um, the, the cohort model of having eight to 12 people in a city go through this experience together. And, and my mentor has been a huge help while I was in the program and we've remained in touch. So I think that was, that for me, that was really what gravitated me towards and, and made it an enriching experience while I was in it. That's great. And so now as the city director, what will your yeah. role be? What will you be doing? So my role um, is, is in a lot of ways to, well, one is to recruit um, cohort members for, uh, for the program, which we are actually in the phase of doing right now um, for the cohort that starts in January. And then to work with uh, alongside the, the Resource Global National Team on identifying who are the right mentors for those cohort members. Um, and then as we go along the course of the curriculum over the eight months, um, I work a lot alongside the cohorts, their mentors, and also recruit speakers, guest speakers um, to speak and teach in each of our month's uh, cohort sessions. So that's a big part of what I do during the, uh, the, the Resource Global cohort season. And then in the off season, uh, I will be recruiting again. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I'm always really interested in is how faith and work coincide. Mm -hmm. And it's such mm -hmm. an interesting thing. Brian and I are both pastors. So sometimes people will say, oh, I need to quit my job. I don't want to go into ministry. And I always <laughs> find that such to be an interesting dichotomy that people often feel like, well, how, how does faith actually play into to my job, my mm -hmm. nine to five, my career? I'd love to just hear you speak to that a little bit. How, how has faith kind of shaped your life and career? Yeah. So I think I've, I've mentioned some of my 
faith and work heroes from the Bible already, right? Joseph, which I love to think about him as the, the first example of an international sustainability plan um, with what he did in Egypt and, and really mm-hmm. working to save people in, in the regions around him. Um, the other ones that I have uh, mentors, biblical mentors, as I like to call them, that I've leaned on is again, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, I think they're a great example of what it means to have a cohort of people who get it and can pray for you. Um, not just when you feel like your life is in danger, but when it literally is in danger because of your work um, and your faith. And then, you know, Esther is another one for me. Um, I, I love how Mordecai had to remind her uh, that she was there for maybe for such a time as this um, right. and how we have these unique moments to, to make change. Um, and so when I think about what faith and work has meant for me in my career, uh, one of the clearest examples for me was when I worked for Claire's. Um, so I led the, the global strategy in the North American marketing for Claire's, the teen accessory store. And uh, I was also volunteering in, our, in my church's teen ministry at the time. And so I was literally walking into work and having meetings with Viacom and NTV and all of these teen brands and in charge of what our um, our styling looked like for the wardrobe for our photo shoots and then going and teaching lessons about modesty uh, for the girls in, in our teen ministry. And what it helped me to see was that I was one of those people who who was instrumental in how young girls saw themselves because I was the person in charge of what the fashion looked like in our shoots and what went up in the stores. And for me, it really crystallized this idea of what would it mean to have people who were fearless because of their faith in God in these different areas and industry making decisions um, that impacted entire generations and communities. Mm. And I think that was where I, I realized that this was my calling. This was my mission field. And you know, young people are so inspired and, and influenced by what they see in the media, uh, on, on TV, uh, in fashion. And what would it look like to have more people like me in all those different places? What would it look like to have people who were in charge of the rating system for movies? Because mm-hmm. these days, PG-13 is not what it was when I was 13. Right. Um, and so for me, that, that has become the driver of faith and work. I think that's one of the things that even inspired me. Um, to come on board with Resource Global because I've I've lived it. I've walked the walk. I've learned how to navigate having strong relationships in the business world while also holding on to the commitment to who I am to Christ and and not being ashamed of my walk with Christ. Yeah. Enjoy. Uh, with the last minute or two that we have left, you talk in here about uh, the next generation of business leaders, of men and women who are leading a business. How do you think the currently and in the future, the next generation of business leaders uh, will be different from, say, the past generations of business leaders? Yeah, I, I think that, the, the, well, the next generation of my hope, Christian business leaders, I think will be different, especially as we invest and equip them, um, because they will have the the savviness. I mean, it's kind of like that scripture of being um, as cunning as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And I think that is what inspires me about what the next generation of Christian business leaders can do, is be equipped um, to to walk through and navigate what they see around them in the world, but also have the heart um, and the purity of Christ um, to, to do that. Mm. 
Joy, we're so glad that you joined us today. Where could people go if they've been listening? They're going, you know what? I'm really interested in being a part of this, learning more. Where can people connect with you guys? Absolutely. So they can go to resourceglobal.org. We actually have an event coming up, um, a a global event, uh, because our cohorts are are global, um, on on Thursday. So if you want to go to uh, resourceglobal.org slash events, uh, you can register for that. But definitely um, they can find my information there as well if they'd like to be in the cohort, learn more, or uh, even eventually serve as a mentor. Great. That's resourceglobal.org. Joy Freeman, uh, the new city director. Uh, for Resource Global. Joy, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank thank you. you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. I do feel like the intros here, Ian, the welcome backs from commercials, the grayer it is outside, the more energetic I feel like I want to be like, hey, friends, it's all dark outside (laughs) on a sunny day. On a sunny day, I'm just like, hey, hi, welcome back. (laughs) You do get extra cartoony if it's gray out for sure. Just wait till our first snow. I'm going to be like on top of the desk, be like, hey, everybody. (laughs) I just assume you're on top of the desk anyway. I am not, but once it snows, that's coming, so... Uh, it is a great day out there, but uh, what do you expect? Tomorrow's December 1st. Mm, crazy. Tomorrow's December 1st. <laughs> Why? Time time Why keeps you, slipping away. You said it like you just <laughs> took a bite of a delicious steak. December 1st. Mm. Mm, mm, yeah. mm, tasty. No, I, was having, I was having one of those existential moments about time. Time just slipping away quickly from us here. So you, that, that came and went pretty quickly, that existential moment's over? And now I'm back to the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> Fair An interesting article you passed our way out of the New York Times from about a week, week and a half ago uh, that I thought I, I want to read a little bit or have us read a little bit of it. But I thought this was going to be a very negative article and they take a very positive slant to it. So let me mm-hmm. read some of it uh, and then you can weigh in on it. It is by Taylor Lorenz and it's entitled this Zillow surfing is the escape we all need right now. So this is how it goes. Scrolling through real estate listings in far-flung destinations is a way to visualize an alternate life, whether you're trying to move or not. Millions of people have spent far more time at home than they expected this year. It's made many of them daydream about what it might be like to live somewhere else, often scrolling through listings on Zillow. People bond over listings on Discord servers, group chats, and Zillow Twitter, and their obsession has made many strange and obscure listings go viral. Curbed, a website covering city life, real estate, and design, recently started a column called My Week in Zillow Saves, in which, myself included, the author says, share the homes they've admired on the site. What many are contemplating when they browse Zillow and similar home buying sites like Redfin, Trulia, and Realtor.com is not necessarily a purchase, but an alternate life. (laughs) Zillow surfing has become a primary form of escapism for those who want to flee not just their homes, but the reality of 2020. Pausing right there. Uh, (laughs) So... I found this fascinating in like uh, people like this has become a growing thing. I didn't know that this was a thing, Uh, but, but the author here paints this as a really good, like this escapism in a very positive light. Like, man, the darkness of 2020, we're all in our homes. Everything's been so down, just having some time to daydream about getting away and, and moving somewhere else, escaping from all of this into an alternate life is a positive. 
And uh, I got to be honest, when I first read this, I said, all right, this is going to turn negative here. And it never really does. What is your take on all of this? Well, it, I can't think of who the comedian is now, but he's got a, a bit where and this is like 10 years old. He he says that he'll <laughs> he'll pretend to look up listings for things he could just never afford. Like mm-hmm. um, he looks up like a like a fighter jet. He's like, oh, yeah, add, add that to cart. He goes, oh, what's that? One point three million. <laughs> I'll save that for later. I'll, I'll at least bookmark it, you know, for another time. This uh, I don't know. I don't know if <laughs> I've just never had the kind of resources. Oh. It doesn't even like appeal to me. Like I I would more likely be like looking at uh, like a new drum set, maybe. Or I'm trying to think. Honestly, for me, it's like meals. <laughs> that's, like, that's that's my skill. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh man, what 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 kind of steak could I be eating if I could afford it right now? The idea of Zillow as a, an escapist exercise is pretty fascinating to me. There's probably other layers to that too, because you know, right now, people are confined to their homes. At least, you mm-hmm. know, the vast majority of us are to some degree, and it says something, doesn't it, about that being a fantasy that is apparently appealing to enough people. But like what you don't see in these listings is what are the neighbors like? Will you make friends there? Where's the nearest uh, grocery store? Like there's probably not a lot of like practical things being brought into that escapism. You're just fantasizing about the house itself, which right Right. now is the thing that most of us are confined to. I just, I just find that to be like a perfect cocktail of interesting things happening at once. And I, I, uh, I, I was surprised that this article stayed so positive is like, hey, this might be a helpful thing just to give your brain a rest and fantasize about an alternate life. I think that's I think that's really interesting. Yeah, here, here's the line I didn't expect. Zillow surfing is especially popular among teenagers. <laughs> a lot yeah, of teenagers right. looking for homes out there. That's but weird. this lawyer, this lawyer later on says he compared the serotonin rush of seeing beautifully staged homes to checking social media and seeing pictures of people's private lives. I get mm. the same sort of joy, he said, from looking in the Redfin as I do on Facebook or Instagram. I find it interesting and almost voyeuristic. And it's gotten to the point, it says at the end of this article, that because they said, well, it's different from social media because there's no interaction. People are actually, a lot of people have been asking Zillow to make comment sections where they can interact with people oh, and kind of have this social media element. Uh, and so let me turn this a little bit here. When you hear that phrase, escapism, kind of this alternate reality, I want to get out of my life that's going on now in a pandemic or whatever else it might be. Uh, and I want to escape and kind of dream about something else. Where are the negatives in this? Where, if people enjoy doing stuff like this, where are the dangers in this kind of thing? I mean, I think there's a danger anytime something is identified as escapism, right? Because mm-hmm. you're escaping something. Now, right. like anything, like, you know, we have streaming services. You want to watch a Netflix movie? Great idea. You want to watch six in a row? Probably not a great idea. That's probably too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like anything, like, oh, man, I uh, really could go for a bowl of ice cream. Good for you. Five gallons of ice cream, probably too much. Like, I think being willing to say, all right, what is driving my insatiable desire to see these homes or to fantasize about this other life? What about my current life? Am I not dealing with or do I not yeah. like or has me feeling buried? It doesn't have to be that. And I think, you know, in general, there's a we need these like healthy ways to sort of turn our brain off or to daydream a little bit. I think all those things are helpful. But like anything, if if you use it or go to that well too often, too frequently, like social media. I mean, it's it's the mm-hmm. perfect comparisons that oh, they it, same kind of dopamine rush as social media. Is Facebook evil? Well, maybe that's a bad example because they, they might be. But like, is using social media evil? No. But if you're on it twelve hours a day, 
that's probably mm-hmm. an issue and you should ask some deeper questions as to why. I think that's a that's a great uh, lead for people is ask the question why and what am I trying to escape from? Uh, what am I trying to cover up here, right? It's the same. This is a much more drastic and dramatic one. I understand I'm taking this way further, but it's what you hear a lot of people, uh, men, especially when they talk about pornography, right? It's escapism. It's, it's, it's uh, and there's something dangerous and just really dark below it. And so I think you, you say a good thing. When, when you hear the word escapism, you got to ask yourself, what am I trying to escape from? But let's not end this dark. Uh, if you were Zillow hunting, I'm not going to hold you to this, but if you were like, hey, there's one area of the country that I would zero in on where I'd be like, oh, that's where I'd love to escape to. Where would it be? Dude, I've been really thinking about Darien. You know, <laughs> any places in Darien. I just can't get it off my mind. Darien, Connecticut, as I often <laughs> as often comes up when I search things. Yes. <laughs> you know, I have one brother who's been international for like the better part of a decade. And he's I'm so jealous because he's been able to he's he, he's constantly traveling. and the thing about, you know, some of the places he's been, he's like, I, I can be, you know, I can visit four or five different countries just in a week if I want to. I'm like that whole, the whole, I mean, I've been to Ireland once. I would love to go back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I fantasize sometimes about like, oh, I'm just going to get a little, a little farmhouse in the hills of Ireland somewhere and a sheepdog and just make butter <laughs> and call it a day. There's, there's a real attractiveness to that for me. But then on the other hand, I'm like, oh, I want to live in the heart of a city. So I don't, yeah. <laughs> I'm the worst person to ask. Yep. Do you, do you have a place in mind? Uh, not a place, but a uh, if I could be at some time in my life, be on a beach, that's it right there really? for me. So, yeah, I'd love to look at beach houses and the view and go, yeah, I could wake up there. I could handle that. Uh, so Zillow surfing. You can find this article from The New York Times uh, at our uh, Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We're glad you're joining us. Coming up uh, next hour, we're going to talk about COVID-19 widening the gap between rich and poor in America. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, COVID-19 has widened the gap between rich and poor in America. Uh, How to expose the idols in your life. And then we're going to talk about God and rock and roll. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, as we've been talking about <clears throat> almost on a daily basis since, what, March 11th, March 12th, uh, since w- everything kind of shut down for the pandemic, uh, what are the results going to be of the ongoing COVID-19 crisis? So there is some good news amidst the bad news. The bad news is cases are spiking and, and kind of going crazy. What's it going to be like post Thanksgiving here? Uh, the good news, Ian, I don't know if you saw this. I was just watching CNN today and they said, uh, I think it was Dr. Fauci who said everybody uh, should have the ability who wants to be vaccinated, should have the ability to be vaccinated all ages, everybody by uh, by the beginning of June. Uh, hmm. So uh, that's that's exciting. And I'm sure we'll be yeah. talking a lot yes. more about those vaccinations, but some light at the end of the tunnel. But one of the interesting things that's going to be, what's the result? What what are some of the underlying things that maybe we didn't see coming? Uh, that I think sociologists and others are going to be tearing apart for years, writing books on. Uh, and some of those have to do with the the widening gap between rich and poor in America and the effects on our kids and school uh, with uh, 
uh, from remote learning and all this other stuff. And with that in mind, at The Economist, we find this article uh, from a couple of days ago, a week or two ago, COVID-19 has widened the gap between rich and poor in America. Again, this is at The Economist. Why don't you get us into this and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I would love to. It begins by saying most species of social scientists, be they economists, sociologists, or psychologists, agree that adversity in childhood spells difficulty in adulthood. Though children are mercifully much less likely to die of COVID-19, the impacts of increased poverty, family job loss, and disrupted schooling will not be so easily avoided. In-person learning is superior to virtual instruction, which more than mere nostalgia explains its persistence. Mm -hmm. This is even more the case for poor children without good internet connections or personal laptops whose families cannot pay for supplemental tutoring and for whom schools provide free meals and stability. Uh, and that, Analyst and boy, oh boy, analyst at McKinsey, a consultancy calculate that if schools resume in-person instruction in January 2021, the average student would suffer seven months of lost learning. Black students would lose even more 10 months. Poor students would forego more than an entire year. Home life is also increasingly disrupted. Surveys from the Census Bureau conducted in September after enhanced Unemployment benefits had lapsed, showed that 30% of households with children headed by parents without high school degrees reported not having had enough to eat in the preceding week of less educated families, a proxy for the less, less well, uh, sorry, a proxy for the less well paid. 21% reported missing last month's rent and a similar share thought it very likely that they would be evicted in the coming two months, partly because job losses have been more pronounced. Indicators of parental mental distress, such as depression and anxiety, have also increased disproportionately. Food, housing, and parental instability are harbingers of worse behaviors in schools, poorer testing outcomes, and eventually lower rates of high school graduation and college completion. That's uh, a lot. There's some yeah. graphs and a whole lot more to this article but it's the kind of thing that you and I have certainly been alluding to for a while when we only speak of COVID with regards to its mortality, which is obviously a very, very important aspect of it, and not uh, speak intelligently to the home dynamics. We've talked about people who are in like abusive contexts, like now not even able to leave mm -hmm. the house where their abuser resides, things like that. Um, it, it It is frightening i think to see some of these studies start to come out that are speculating some some real tough challenges for a lot of kids and again once again I, you know the disparity between the rich and the poor is is something that i think we need to keep out in front you know you and i have mentioned hopefully almost ad nauseum like man we still get to do our jobs you know when 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 yeah. we were doing everything from our basement like that is a that is a massive massive gift that a lot of people uh don't have so for us to still be able to maintain those those things is um, a blessing, but also pretty rare. And I, the more I read articles like this, the more stirred and convicted I am. I, I'm not sure what to do with it necessarily. Right. I don't. I don't know if you have thoughts there. I I don't know what to do with it. It, it does speak to the nuance of this of the people. You know, th there are some people out there just, like, just shut everything down. We just have to shut everything down. And and you get where that comes from, right? Like, okay, let's keep. Uh, as few people sick as possible, but then you start to see the repercussions, like you said, uh, especially as statistics are bearing out in lower income families. And, and it's just heartbreaking to look at these stats and go, okay, my kids, it says are going to average months of learning lost three to six months, right? Like, and that stinks. Like, I don't want that for my children. But if you were from a lower income home, you're looking at a year's worth of in of of learning lost and so on and so forth. And you go that disparity now 
is is only going to grow. Uh, there was an article at the Christian Post uh, that said failing grades have spiked by 83 percent due to school closures in response to COVID-19. That's a that's an unbelievable number. Eighty nine, eighty three percent. And that is going to have repercussions for so long. And again, my kids can fail, but. But my wife and I were just talking over the weekend, like we're thankful that we have the opportunity for us to work around home, uh, for us to have Internet access. But also, you know, that our that our kids, uh, they, they've got kind of a safe environment here to be able to do their at home work. And they're kind of set up a little bit more for success. And like you said, I don't know the answer to all of the questions. Uh, I do think that uh, a lot of states are starting to say, hey, you know what, we've got to do all we can to get the schools back open and do it safely, but recognizing schools haven't been major spreaders of COVID-19 right now, that there needs to be a little bit of a nuanced discussion. And then if people want to keep their kid home, they keep their kid home, but uh, a little bit more of a nuanced discussion of my elementary school and my middle school student are going back to school tomorrow, uh, Wednesday. And the district has kind of said, we've got to kind of try to figure this out. And so uh, I do. It, it is wild to think like if you and I are lucky enough to be doing this show a year from now, two years yeah. from now, what are the articles we're going to be doing about uh, the effect on the church, the effect on kids, the effect on mental health? This article talks about people, uh, students with learning disabilities or, or how yeah. much they're being affected. Like like yeah. you said, I don't know the answer, uh, but the fallout from COVID-19 uh, beyond the physical, the physical is right now primary, but beyond the physical uh, is scary to think about. And and I do think uh, we as as just a, as a culture, we need to be thinking this. We are people are, but uh, we need to be sensitive to people who are like, hey, you know, we, we got to watch out for our kids or watch out for this. And, and we got to try to figure out our way through this maze, hopefully until this vaccine brings stuff a little more to normal. Well, I, I think it's got to be more than just being sensitive to I think we need to be proactive in whatever ways that we can. At the very least, I feel like these two articles help. If there's someone who, let's say a week ago, could not even fathom why a parent would want their students in school. Like, why are yeah. all these parents fighting to have their kids in schools? Like, that's so silly. I can't even why. You know what I mean? Like, it could be another parent or someone that doesn't have kids or whatever it is. Like, if you're having a difficult time even understanding how the other side of the argument might feel. I, I do think articles like this at the very least help add some color to the complex nuance of, like you were saying, nuance, I think is probably the right word. Um, fortunately you, or I aren't, you know, on the boards making these decisions. So there is a certain level of freedom where we, ah, we just get to kind of talk about it and then best of luck school boards and, you know, government officials. But it is, I do appreciate the very least that this helps provide i think a pulling back of the of the curtain say hey there's there's a lot more going on here that we we do need to consider and a lot of these things are less immediate or less stark or less in your face um but but in some cases almost as serious and we mm-hmm. need to be willing to consider those things too yeah and so if you want to read those articles one from the economist the other from the christian post they're up on our facebook page the common good radio show coming up next i want to talk about a story that just caught my eye uh and and uh, I surprisingly got it got me really down as I read it over the weekend. I want to share that story next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Ian, mm-hmm. what are the holidays of the day? And so, Ian, I'm ready for today. What are the holidays of today? 
Well, as plenty of people know, it is Cyber Monday. That's apparently That's an true. actual thing. Are you a Cyber Monday guy? No, I I should be because you can get good deals. I, I tend to like when it comes to Black Friday or Cyber Monday, I get way too cheap. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I, I hope I hope we don't buy too much today or, you know, not spending anything's the best way to save money as opposed to we got to get stuff for Christmas. That's a long winded way of saying no. I haven't bought anything online. Today. <laughs> How about yourself? How about I'm yourself? very proud. No, 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 no. Thank you. Although my wife owns a small business, so I did. Uh, I did send some stuff out over the interwebs about shop small, uh, small business Saturday. But that's not what we're talking about right now. Uh, it is also St. Andrew's Day, who I believe patron saint of Scotland. Is that right? That's where the golf course is, I believe. So, yeah, sounds right. Oh, yes. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh, that, I might be wrong then, but that does make sense. <laughs> um, but here's here's one. It's an act, this is an actual holiday for today. It's National Give Space Day, which is fitting, giving, <laughs> given yeah. our current circumstances. Six feet of space. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, National Mason Jar Day. Super exciting. My friend... My friend's name is Mason, so I, I try to make Mason draw jokes all the time, which I'm sure I'm the first person in his life to do that, and uh, <laughs> I don't think he likes them. Um, it's National Moose Day. All right. What's the what is uh, When there's more than one moose, what is that? You got me. Not that kind of moose, though. More like a chocolate moose kind of situation. Oh, really? Okay, that's yeah. a better kind of moose. I like chocolate moose. <laughs> when there's more than one chocolate moose, that's called a gaggle, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It is National Mississippi Day. Uh, the states again. Come on. <laughs> I, we're not even done yet. I got more. National Stay Home Because You're Well Day. That's fun. No, no reaction to that. No, no. I thought you were, it sounded like you were moving on to another one right away. That's like COVID <laughs> day. That's like National Quarantine Day, right? Stay home I was gonna because say, you're well. <laughs> some of these clearly were thought up before uh, COVID. Uh, Computer Security Day. And last but not least, a real favorite for Brian Fromm, National Meth Awareness Day. So <laughs> I am aware. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that you know, knowing is half the battle. Those are yes. the holidays for today. Awesome. I'll get you a mason jar full of meth and we'll knock two of them off. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> that one's going to no, come back to haunt me at some point. <laughs> yeah, I want that soundbite too. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, I do strangely have come to really enjoy you reading the holidays every day. So I don't know if anyone else does, but I've, uh, I was going to say, I, I almost doubt that anyone does, but, uh, but I, I do. do. And, it, and it's <laughs> our show. So, <laughs> so we're going to go with it. Well, I was on, uh, making a hard right turn here. I was on NBCnews.com the other day and I read this story and someone I'd never heard of, but it kind of got me, you know, I don't know. I'll just tell you the story. And it got me just kind of, Thinking about the deeper things of life, we'll put it that way. So here's a guy by the name of Tony Shea. Uh, uh, Tony Shea, the retired CEO of Las Vegas-based online shoe retailer Zappos.com, who spent years working to transform the city's downtown area, has died. He was 46. Mm. Uh, Shea was with family when he died Friday, according to a statement from DDP Companies, which he founded. Downtown Partnership spokesman Megan Fazio said Shea passed away in Connecticut. a lawyer for Shea told news outlets that Shea had been injured in a house fire while visiting Connecticut. Additional details were not immediately released. Tony's kindness and generosity touched the lives of everyone around him and forever brightened the world. Delivering happiness was always his mantra. So instead of mourning his transition, we ask you to join in celebrating his life. Shea recently retired from Zappos after 20 years of leading the company. 
the online shoe retailer shared a tribute on social media. Shea was a Harvard University graduate who joined the company, then called ShoeSite.com in 1999. Zappos was sold to Amazon for $1.2 billion in 2009, but Shea had remained with the company until his retirement. For years, he also worked to revitalize downtown Las Vegas, uh, and the story goes on to talk about his life. Uh, he was called an original thinker, a brilliant entrepreneur, and a kind-hearted and generous friend to so many. So why am I sharing this story? Obviously, don't know Tony Shea, never heard of him. I was reading this story, and again, forgive me for turning this a little melancholy, but when I read that story over the weekend and read about all that he had accomplished, he was only 46, he was just starting retirement, he was working to do this and do this. Man, things like that, all of a sudden, as a pastor, I start thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes, and I start thinking about mm -hmm. the book of James, about like the uncertainty that we all assume that we've got till the age of 80. We all assume that we've got this. And, and it's, of course, uh, yeah, I've got a lot more days and weeks and months and years. And I'm sure this guy thought, too. But, man, when I read this, uh, only a couple, he's only a couple years older than me and had kind of his life, his second stage of life or so ahead of him and all these people saying nice things about him. Uh, I, that's where my mind went, just kind of this mm -hmm. uncertainty of life and something that we talk about a lot in churches, right? I'm sure you've preached the sermon. I've preached the sermon multiple times. Uh, but when you read stories like this, you're reminded again and again and again, yeah, life really is fragile and fleeting. And, uh, and we all have to live under that truth, not be dominated by that truth, but live under that in some way. So Anyway, that's why I wanted to share this story. What what do you, uh, do you do you get struck by those same things when you read stories like this? I mean, I, I feel like we're all struck by it to an increasing degree since this pandemic, man. I feel mm -hmm. like I feel like we've all been contemplating our mortality. Uh, maybe not all. Maybe that's not safe to say. I know I certainly have. And there's others. You know, when I think about being a dad, you know, I'm kind of still new to this fatherhood thing. Being with them, weirdly enough, certainly makes me ponder my my own mortality it it is interesting because i don't think so often in years past when i've heard people you know from stages talk about you know be mindful that you're not guaranteed your next breath it always was like depressing to me like yeah. oh, gosh yeah. i could it, it just everything you know like you mentioned ecclesiastes that everything's a mist everything's a vapor it's like here and then it's gone it looks like you can grab it but you can't it's just it's just vapor it's fog um, but probably in the last 15, 20 years or so, it's actually, it's been much more inspiring. I think, uh, not in the big sweeping, like reach for the stars types goal setting, but like in the, Hey, how, how you treat people matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the way you interact with, you know, and, and again, interaction obviously looks much different now than, than it did a year ago, but like, Hey, um, forgiving quickly matters. Uh, choosing the words you speak to your family and those closest to you matter. Like, Yes, obviously, you know, working hard and hustling matters. And it's, I mean, it's the beautiful thing about this article because it's not only like people saying, oh, he's a, a truly original thinker, a brilliant entrepreneur, but he's also kind hearted and generous. You know, like those are the kinds of things that I think often get out of whack for people. Sometimes, you know, they can be so driven that they like forget to be kind. They forget mm -hmm. to love people. They forget to, you know, forget where they came from, that kind of stuff. Um, I think those things are really, like you were saying, tough to keep in tension because, we do sometimes feel like we're going to live forever. You know, a lot of people yeah. do. And to keep the, a right perspective of like why, why we're here on planet earth now, but to also recognize, man, God's ultimately in control and could, I mean, that, that could all end in a heartbeat. Um, and I just, I think those are helpful things 
for us to keep out in front of us and not let it crush us, but help it kind of motivate us and drive us like, all right, what, what do I want to do with, you know, whatever few breaths God allows me to have. And I think those are, I think those are important things to grapple with. Yeah. I think stories like this and, and the book of James and Ecclesiastes, as we grapple with them, as you said, they do spur us onto urgency. They don't so much just depress us as much as, okay, I'm not guaranteed anything. What am I going to do? And, uh, yeah, this can become overwhelming, but I also think we probably, a lot of us tend towards just ignoring these truths and just right. not giving any thought to them. And so I thought it would be, uh, helpful just to use that story to kind of remind us of these important truths. Well, coming up next, we're going to shift gears and the gospel coalition, Joe Carter, who we've had on the show before wrote an article this weekend entitled how to expose the idols in your life. We're going to discuss mm-hmm. that next year on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday evening. Hope you're doing well. Getting back into the work week after uh, hopefully a long Thanksgiving weekend uh, full of turkey. Do you guys eat leftovers, Ian, for like a couple days? How long will you go turkey, turkey sandwich, turkey whatever? How long are you reheating Thanksgiving dinner? As long as the good Lord will let me. I So you'll I go until it's gone. Oh, one. That's... Brian, that's just my policy on everything. Anyway, okay. it's you. Okay. You forget. I. I mean, I grew up a poor kid in a big family, so you. You don't throw out anything. Much to my wife's horror, they're, they're, they're like, I think this has gone bad. I'm like, I'll chuck it. I'll chuck it right now. If you think it's it. starting to go bad, better better get the nutrients before it goes full bad. Yeah, it's so not a when, good not a good policy. When you, when you go to a restaurant that I'm assuming you are bringing your food home and leftovers, like you're bringing the- 100%. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yes. All right. Here's the test though. Cause my wife and I bring everything home, especially okay. from a restaurant. Uh, but have you ever been, are you, what happens if you're out with like another couple who does not take their food home? Will you take their food home with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming this is something you've done. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Wow. It's just been so long since we've been out with other people. I don't even remember anymore. Who knows? I I do feel like that's next level. You and I, we're going to have to fight over leftovers. The next time we ever go out, it's going to be like, I'll take that. No, I'll take that. (laughs) Oh, I bring my own saran ramp, brother. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. (laughs) When someone else says they don't want their leftovers, you can always see my wife and I looking at them like, really? (laughs) (laughs) This is coming from the guy that would keep a bag of gold if he found it on the street. Is that what? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I'm sensing a real theme here. <laughs> yes, take home stuff. So, uh, okay. At the Gospel Coalition, Joe Carter, who was on the show a week or two ago. Friend of the uh, show. Friend of the show. Wrote this. How to expose the idols in your life. Idol worship, a major, I don't think we realize how big of a, uh, of a topic this is throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, and so this is an interesting article. He writes, how to expose the idols in your life. Why don't you read some of this and then we'll talk about it. I've always wondered, too, because I feel like every time we preach on idols, we have to say now idols aren't just golden statues. We it, like That's would true. it be worth modernizing the word? Like, let's just stop calling. It, mm-hmm. Let's come up with something that makes more sense in the immediate, because I feel like that's often the first 30 seconds of any sermon on it is explaining. It's not just this. It's not just that or whatever. So. It begins by saying few stories in the Old Testament tend to make us feel more superior to the Israelites than the tale of the golden calf in Exodus 32. 
How backwards they must have been to think you could make a god out of metal. How silly to think bringing offerings to a statue would bring peace, joy, and happiness. The entire story is almost too absurd to believe, or at least until we examine our own idols. Imagine if the, if the Israelites could see the idols we bow down before. Cable news uh, on big screen TVs, grades on a report card, acceptance on social media. They would likely find our idols even more ridiculous than we find their golden calf. The reason idolatry is listed first in the Ten Commandments is because idolatry is always the reason we do we ever do anything wrong. As Tim Keller points out, quote, we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. The secret to change, then, is always to identify and dismantle the basic idols of the heart. Dismantling our idols, however, is often difficult because we don't want to expose them, understandably. We don't want to admit, even to ourselves, that we've made an idol out of our politics, our work, our relationships, or our comfort. It's easier to rationalize that they're not really idols at all, merely good things we sometimes focus on too much. I've heard that explanation. I've probably given that explanation Mm -hmm. personally. Not everything that we love is an idol, of course. There is much in creation that that has been given for our enjoyment. We can appreciate the gifts of God without making them a replacement for him. But if they are the first things our minds turn to, then you may have identified a problem area. Here are a few areas to examine in order to determine whether the good things in your life have replaced a good God. So it's going to give a list of different examinations. We're not going to have time to unpack all of them, obviously, but uh, I think that's a great setup, and I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. I'm curious. You've obviously preached on idols. How do you, what's the general uh, direction you go when you preach about idols, modern day idols, and and the importance of it in scripture? What, what's kind of the usually how you get at it when you preach on, on idol worship? I'm usually like, go ahead and worship them. It's fine. It's not a a big deal. Um, Yeah. I use a couple of different metaphors. Uh, One of the things that I'll, I'll talk about is I'll say, when you put the weight and expectation of God on anything other than God, it eventually crumbles beneath the weight. So sort of like the weight metaphor, like sometimes, sometimes we, we think of idol worship as like this bowing down and looking up and worshiping, but sometimes idol worship is like, putting God size expectations on someone or something other than God. And we've all felt that crumble. Like if we really think a bigger paycheck or a bigger house or fancy car, you know, those things are almost easy to root out, but we can still kind of fall prey to them. I think it tends to be much more subtle. It's sort of like the constant seeking of approval or the roller coaster that is, you know, my emotions all the time or the things that I, you know, I draw my attention constantly or, things that set me off like those those are symptoms of like a deep idol worship which i I think is what he's getting at like he lists a couple of examinations imagination attention finances prayer life relationships emotions concerns past and future any any kind of explains why it's important to examine all those i think that's a great list i don't know if if you have particular metaphors or ways that you tend to kind of go after idol worship yeah i a lot of the what you just talked about, because, again, you start every idol worship sermon uh, talking about how it's different from the golden calf. But here's what idol worship looks like in our day. And, um, you know, I I feel like the most um, uh, connection I got with people was when I talked about my uh, and others propensity to kind of make our children into idols. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of shared that from the stage one day. Uh, and people were like, wow, I'd never really thought about that. Like that, that our, as we become parents and as our kids get older, uh, we could kind of hold our kids up and, and their success is a reflection of us. So everything we do is focused on them and their advancement. 
in uh, and, and the kind of idol worship. Tim Keller talks about that. Uh, Keller's done great work on uh, discussing idol worship. What is it called? Counterfeit gods. Counterfeit Tim gods. Yeah, yeah, uh, is phenomenal. But yeah, this list he makes here: examine your emotions and examine your concerns. Like, what do you most fear? What do you most hope for? What are you most passionate about? What do you most desire? What makes you angry or sad? What do you worry about? What makes you most anxious? What do you f- most fear losing? Like how you answer those questions uh, is going to start to show what's the most important things in your life. And like you said, they're not all bad things for sure. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate the way you said there, though, uh, putting the weight that, that only God can hold on other things, because I think that's a that's a good that's a solid picture as to what mm-hmm. why this is so dangerous. So anything from that list stick out to you, though, that he, that he made? Yeah, they, I mean, there's definitely a theme there. What I would say to probably all of these, if I could distill it down, one of the things that I know that I've, it's been years, but one I used to use in sermons is um, if you've ever said, God, I'll follow you if, or mm-hmm. God, I'll follow you when, whatever's on the other side of that is your actual God. Like that's your actual God. I will, I'll follow you if or when, fill in your own blank. Um, and that's probably closer to an idol than than you might think. That that to me is that's sort of what he's getting at here because each of these each of these categories are they could be their own sermons, you know, attention. I do think the attention one is really interesting. We've talked about it on the show before too, how I was reading an article years ago on, on attention being the new currency of power, you know, where mm. historically it used to be uh armies or military or land or um property or walls or any of that kind of stuff. And the idea of attention merchants, like going forward, the people who can hold attention the longest will be the ones with the most power in the room. And I do think that is a, that's a really interesting one to, to examine as he uh, proposes here as a way of kind of getting at what are the things that I my heart are kind of drawn to without me even realizing that. I think it's a great list. Yeah, absolutely. So that article is up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to end the show. Uh, with a uh, a doctor, a Christian doctor, <laughs> who explains why God is not a rock and roll God. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, you, we, we've talked on the show. Not only are you a music guy, but you were. Do you consider that you were a drummer or you are a drummer? How, how would you describe yourself? Oh, once a drummer, always a drummer, my man. Very nice. In all seriousness, was there ever a point in your life where a well-meaning brother or sister in Christ tried to tell you that it was, uh, it was not okay for you to be a drummer out of the for theological reasons because you know drumming is the way of satan or something that oh, ever happened yeah. to you absolutely multiple times tell give us a story without using <laughs> names of course like how what does that even look like because we always talk about things like this and i'm like that sure. never actually happens does oh, it yeah. uh so what did that look like for you well i think they were just trying to tell me that i wasn't that good i think it just came out <laughs> they called me demonic and they're like you just aren't talented no i remember we uh i was playing in a band and we were doing a, a a very small little tour. So we were playing at some other church up the road, and um, a guy, I think he was an elder or something from the church, all I really remember him saying is, uh, you were playing the devil's beat up there, son. And I was like, do you remember what song that was? Because I'd like to, <laughs> I was such a, I was like 16. Yeah, right, I was like, 
It just kind of yeah, gave him gave him metal horns with my hand and then walked off. I was like, yeah, <laughs> hardcore, bro. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was I was so taken aback by it. I think because we had just finished the set and he kind of beelined it to me, and he had that that look on his face like I don't think this is going to be a fun conversation. Mm. And he wasn't looking for an argument. It was just like that was you were playing the devil's beat up there, and I was like. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I don't I didn't know. <laughs> I was very uh surprised. But same, like you, I was like, "Oh, I didn't know people actually did that." So I'm glad I'm glad that I I have that one stored away for memories now. Exactly. Well, you might be asking why am I asking this question? Yeah. So I, I came across uh some teaching, if you will, an interview on Twitter. Uh some of you may be familiar with a guy by the name of Dr. Christian Birdall. It seems to be is it safe to say his thing? Uh, to kind of speak on and teach on the dangers of rock and roll music or beats or other kinds of music, hip hop and rap. And uh, if you've ever looking to sp- to fill your time sometime, uh, go ahead and Google him and, and you can listen to some of it. But I want you to listen to this close to two minute thing and in which uh, Dr. Christian Birdall explains why God is not a rock and roll God. Go ahead and play that. You say that God does not love rock and rollers. That's of a, course. That's yeah. But someone someone heard me say that. I want to I want to correct that in your thinking. Why is God not a rock and roll God? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the genre or the style of music rock and roll was birthed out of rebellion. And God is not of rebellion. The devil is of rebellion. He rebelled against God and his government, his law and his character. So God not being the author of rebellion would never utilize a, a medium of rebellion to teach his gospel. So he would not be a rock and roll God. You could say he wouldn't be a hip-hop or a rap God because, again, those genres, anybody that's in those genres, they'll tell you it is a genre or a style of music that is rebellion and it's infused with that character. And as a listener, we become imbued with the same spirit. Except that somebody is watching right now yeah. and they're saying kids come to church and it's boring. Right. And, and they listen to these old hymns and they're droning on. And there's some old lady with a squeaky voice in the organ. And who listens to organ music anyway? Yeah. And this is the music that kids are accustomed to. I'm right there with them. Right, right, right. (laughs) But they like this music. Yeah. And so if we just change the music in church, it'll be what the kids like. And so they'll like to be in church. And that's really one of the great cries. What they're saying is the music bed doesn't matter. The lyrical content is all that matters. So if we have... Good Christian lyrics, the music bed doesn't matter. There you go. I mean, right? You've heard it before. Of course I have. Yeah. I, I talk about this. Sure. Thing. So here's the question I have, and that is when you talk about com- communication, we're having a conversation right now. Did you know that 93% of our communication is nonverbal? Nonverbal. Yeah. 97%. Is- All right, Ian, what do you think? Dr. Christian Birdall, correct? Is he right? Is he wrong? How would you, uh, how would you <laughs> assess what he has to tell us here? Well, I mean, that's the thing, man. I don't even know what, what I'm assessing. Like I, I I don't mean, I don't, I didn't mean that disrespectfully either. Like he's the, in this clip in particular, and I've actually listened to other clips. I just, I mean, one, I think Larry Norman would disagree. Um, but you know, Larry Norman, you know, Larry Norman, right? Jesus is the rock and he he rolled my blues away. No, no. You don't know that song? We've already established <laughs> I'm not the music guy. Oh, Larry Norman, man. Go go Google Larry Norman. I, and just have, I will have do. Time. Okay. Um, but, I mean, other than that, it's he's not really – I don't even know what to, what to dismantle. I, I guess just to put it bluntly, I don't agree. Um, do you want more than that? <laughs> I do. I do. 
I, I was in a strange way. I did want to end this just kind of funny because I thought ah, this yeah. is kind of out there. But you are the music guy of the show, and you do, I should say, let's take it a little more serious. You do believe strongly in the power of music and yeah, the, yeah. the influence and even, you know, different styles of music to the glory of God or what, however else you want to speak of it. Uh, so my guess is that while this is funny, this is probably also a little bit bothersome to you is my guess. Yeah, and I, I don't think if, if I could give him the benefit of the doubt, I don't think he's anti-music. I don't think. I've not mm-hmm. done enough True. research on this guy. I think he would give certain permissions for certain kinds of music. I think he would agree with what you just said, that music can be used to glorify God. He's really, really convinced that there's particular styles. And the thing that's interesting is he's not just making or trying to make uh, an exegetical theological claim. He's also trying to make a physiological one. And he talks in other videos about the frontal lobe and about the rhythms mm-hmm. of the human heart and the human body and what certain music does to our bodies and how that's demonic and how that, you know, he's a doctor, right? Is that right? It says yeah. DR for yeah. his name. I don't know. I don't know where that <laughs> came from or what that's, what that yeah. is in necessarily. So I know that he's, I know that he's a, a smart person, um, but it does, I don't know. It really bums me out because like in some of the, like in this interview, you know, like, well, what about, what about the kids that, you know, find the music uh-huh. engaging? And that's, a, you, as you and I were both youth pastors, that's certainly something that we we grappled with. Like, all right, well, sure, the music's a little loud, but uh, if it's going to engage the kids, maybe that's worthwhile. I just think what he's proposing is, is so uh, unhelpful to the furthering of the kingdom of God. I think that there certainly is, we've talked on the other side of this about, yeah, just because it's played on Caleb doesn't mean it's like the most... <laughs> God honoring music in general. Sorry. I believe God also believes in like good artistry and and lyricism and composition. I believe that God is a creator. And if God is a creative God and we're made in his image and likeness, then it makes perfect sense then that we would be creative beings. Um, but to, yeah, to dismantle it all, it all feels like a whisper, like a, like conspiracy theory type stuff. Doesn't it like, Oh, this, oh, this secret sure. beats and this is what, and none of you see it and you're all being duped. That's that sort of like as one-on-one conspiracy theory rhetoric kind of thing. Right. And so I don't know if a lot of people are taking that seriously, but maybe they are. I just, it, it bums me out because like there's so many people who, you know, are hardwired to create in certain capacities and messages like this. I could potentially hinder them. And that, and that frustrates me. That's, that's well put. I think that, uh, yeah, if you listen to his other one about frontal lobes and stuff like that, you're like, man, this is kind of a deep dive here and go ahead and find it. Uh, but I think you, you bring up an important point that we've talked about many days about contextualization and, and that there, it doesn't mean you need to love all music. Right. But it doesn't, it also doesn't mean that the music you don't like is of the devil. And right, so, right. Uh, and, and there's uh, some missed opportunity here. So you can find that up on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. We're excited to be together again tomorrow. I believe, Oh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. I think friend of the show, Scott Sauls may be joining us tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It does seem and, that way. Uh, very excited for that. Hopefully you'll join us tomorrow from four until six for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life.